Amen. Ooh, that's a loud mic. No, it's okay. I don't know. All right. A scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. And my PowerPoint remote died, so give me a second. got to do it on my phone. You got it for me? But how are you going to advance my scripture slides? That's the problem. That might get tricksy. It might work from my tablet. It might not. Who knows? It's been a day of technology issues, and it seems like, as Steph said, when it rains, it pours. That's exactly what it's done today so far. So... I got it. All right. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, verse 22, where the Holy Scriptures read. I'll let you get it here, Jacob, and I'll do the rest. Beginning in verse 23, it reads, The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left, his wife to his, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished by his teaching. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today and we ask again that you would be our teacher, that we would understand these truths, not just intellectually, but at the core of our being in a way that shapes our affections and our desires so that we live for the life to come, not the momentary life of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to belief in life after death, Many have concluded, not only is it improbable, but it's impossible. For example, the renowned scientist who happened to be an atheist, Carl Sagan, who was the author of the 13-part scientific television series, it's not advancing for me. You can get it for me, you follow along. Okay, the renowned scientist, Carl Sagan, who was an atheist, was the author. 13-part television series titled Cosmos. You may have heard of this. He did not believe in life after death within the cosmos. And though he was optimistically hopeful that the universe contained life on other planets, he did not believe that the universe allowed for life outside of this universe after death. In fact, before he died, here's what he said. He turned me down just a little bit. I'm hearing an echo. It's going to drive me bananas. Thanks. He said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again, but that some, that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue, but I know of nothing to suggest that it is anything more than wishful thinking. 
And when he finally died, to make it more sad, his wife described the inspiration that she received from the cartons of letters that fans poured in, and she said this, all these letters allow me to feel, without resorting to the supernatural or religion, that Carl still lives. Another famous scientist you may have heard of is Albert Einstein, and he also denied the notion of an afterlife, and not because he denied any sort of God who existed. He believed in Spinoza's like deist God, basically, like the clockwinder who wound things up. And what he said was this. He could not conceive of an individual that survives his physical death. However, let feeble souls from fear or absurd egotism cherish such thoughts. There's a burn. <laughs> what he's saying is that belief in the afterlife is for self cowards. What he's saying, Einstein said that, so maybe you don't like him as much anymore, but that's what he said. He said it's a crutch for the weak to get them through life. What might serve for some, the truth is, it's just an imaginary comfort. It's like a nightlight that little kids think will keep away the boogeyman. It's not actually doing anything. It's just a comfort to get you through the night. And now you know why so many atheist philosophers has called for humanity to grow up Stop acting like children, having to have this belief in a sky daddy who's going to take us to heaven when we die. They say that is for cowards, so let it go. Instead, what they call us to do is to embrace the stark, cold truth of reality as we know it, not as we'd like it to be. For the truth is that this life, this momentary brief existence that we have going around the sun on this planet is all that we have, and in the end, when we die, we rot. That's it. But take heart, they say. I don't know how, but here's, that's what they say. Take heart, because once we jettison that childish belief and throw the emotional crutch of belief in God away, just imagine the wonderful world that we can make together. Just imagine, as one famous theologian put it, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Who was that? John Lennon from the Beatles. When it comes to humanity's biggest questions, life after death is by far I think it's probably the most important question we ask, if not in the top three. It's up there. It's one of the most important questions that we have to answer because how we answer that question affects how we live our lives. And understood that. For if there is no life to come, that means this is it. It's a fast roller coaster ride. You better have fun because that ride's coming to a brief and abrupt, or to an abrupt end. There we go, abrupt. So then, don't waste your life living for pie in the sky because you're never going to get to eat it. So here on earth, eat all the pie there is and more. Have two pieces, have three pieces. Enjoy it because that's all there is. Now, as we said a minute ago, you don't have to be an atheist to think this way, as we saw with Einstein. In fact, the religious leaders that we find in our passage this morning weren't atheists at all. They believed in Yahweh God. However, like Einstein, they didn't believe in life after death. And because they didn't, they followed John Lennon's advice to a T. And what the Sadducees did was they lived for the here and now. And because they lived for the here and now, this group, the Sadducees, were very pro-earth. 
which made them very pro-Rome, who were currently in control of said earth. And so when this Jesus of Nazareth came along with his teachings about repenting for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they realized that that sounded like that conflicted directly with the kingdom of Rome in which they had so much power and prestige, which allowed them to enjoy life on the planet. And so in light of Jesus's ever-growing popularity, they attempted to refute him for his afterlife theology, hoping that he would lose sway with the crowds. And they did so by way of a question. However, as we'll see in a moment, their question showed that their understanding of God and the afterlife was completely mistaken. And it was mistaken because they, they not only lived for this life, but they refused to believe in a life to come. And living for this life is a perfectly okay thing to do if there is no life to come, but it's a completely ridiculous and foolish thing to do if this life is but the introduction to the greater life to come. And as Jesus reveals, there is, in fact, a life to come. And so if we want to avoid the making the mistake of the, fair, of the Sadducees here, which is also the mistake of Carl Sagan, Einstein, and John Lennon, we have to know three things, and here they are. To live for the life to come, we must know, one, the word of God, two, the power of God, and three, and finally, the astonishing love of God. In verses 23 through 28, we find the second of the four theological chess matches that are occurring between Jesus and the religious leaders, because there's four of them. And evidently, I can't count. And a lot of you already knew that because last week I said there was only three of them, which was wrong. There was actually four. And I'm not sure anyone noticed this since nobody actually pointed this out, but hopefully here we are with another Sunday, which allows me to print a retraction and correct my bad counting ability. So there it is. It retracts. Jesus answers four theological chess matches going on in Matthew 22. Now, as we saw last week, the first theological was it? Do we render to Caesar or not? And this was a brilliant question. It was a brilliant chess move and it, and it put Jesus in check and it's like, oh, how's he gonna get out of this? Is there a way out? Might be checkmate. Nope, Jesus checkmate him in the following move with a brilliant response by saying, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and render to God that which is God's. And the people left that situation astonished, just like they do today, spoiler alert. They left marveling at Jesus's brilliant answer. And so here, what we find in our passage this morning, the Sadducees are like, all right, Pharisees, step aside. It's our turn up to bat. We're going to hit a home run here against Jesus. He's going to lose sway with the people. It'll be perfect. We don't have to worry about this guy anymore. And they try to stump him with a question. And this question is meant to make Jesus look ridiculous. And it's funny because just like the Pharisees, they come up with all the flattery and like, oh, teacher, we have a question for you. Nope, they're trying to hypocritically trap him with a question. And that question begins in verse 24. Let's read 24 through 28. I'm gonna slow down. Talking too fast. Verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So the second and third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven brothers, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. 
Now, when it comes to the Sadducees and the thoughts behind this question, there's at least two things we need to understand about the Sadducees in order to make proper sense of the Sadducees' question. Okay, first off, the Sadducees, as we said a minute ago, they didn't believe in an afterlife at all. They were like Carl Sagan, they were like Einstein, John Lennon, like they were like, nope, this earth is all there is. And that is why, as we all learned as good little Sunday school children, that the Sadducees were sad, you see. Anybody remember that? All right, good. You, you listened in Sunday school. They were sad, you see, because they believed in no resurrection. This life was all there was, so they were sad, you see. All right, enough of that. Now, another important thing about them is that they only believed in the Pentateuch as the authoritative word of God. What's the Pentateuch? Matthew? Mark? Nope, nope, nope. Old Testament? Go back. Genesis? Exodus? Leviticus? Numbers? Got it. You guys are passing with flying colors today. The first five books of the Bible is the Pentateuch. That's all they believed in. Outside of that, like, okay, it might be helpful, but nope, this is the authoritative word of God. And so everything outside of that, including the Pharisees' oral law and their tradition they held to be equal with God's authority, they were like, forget your stuff. We only go with this. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were not friends. They didn't get along. But when Jesus shows up, what do they do? The enemy of my enemy is my what? Friend. All right, wonderful. Now, everything outside of the Pentateuch, they rejected. They rejected the Pharisees' oral law and traditions, and so consequently, they didn't get along. And so their question about the widow comes from that perspective. Only the first five books of the, of the Bible are allowed, and there is no resurrection because you don't find that in the first five books of the Bible. Everybody tracking with me? Two of you. Wonderful. Okay. Now, the book or the, the question that they reference comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which gave a provision referred to as, here's the $25 word, a Leverite marriage vow. Okay? And in that provision, here's how it worked. When a Jewish woman's husband died, one of the brothers of the deceased man was obligated to marry her. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. It sounds crazy and weird to us, but back then it was actually a way of taking care of women in a world which was very surviving. And so this was actually a gracious act of God that allowed this woman to continue on and be provided for given that once she had been married and had children, her status and her, like nobody was really gonna seek her out for marriage at that point. And so the firstborn son from that family, uh, he would be obligated all the way down to the other brothers to marry uh, his, dead brother's, his, his dead brother's wife so that the man's son, that, that the son that they would have together would take the family name. So that's the way it worked. The brother would come in, he would marry the widow, they would have a son together, and that son would take the man's name, the dead brother's name, so that the name would keep being passed on and it wouldn't pass out of existence. Okay, so with this in mind, the Sadducees propose a logical question that comes in the form of reductio ad absurdum. Reducto what? Do you remember, anybody have a logic class? Do you remember this term, reductio ad absurdum? Well, if you remember that, it's exactly how it sounds. It simply means to reduce an argument to the absurd in order to show that the opposite argument of the absurd argument has to be true. Like, look how ridiculous this is. You really this? Have seven husbands someday? That's going to be a mess. There can't be a resurrection. That's the way that they were arguing to Jesus. 
And so they argued it was absurd. Not only because the sixth and seventh brother agreed to marry this lady whose husbands keep mysteriously dropping off like flies. I mean, why? Something's going on there with the cooking. But it's absurd to think that this woman would either live in an incestuous, polyandrous relationship. Say that seven times fast. Or that this woman would only be married to one man and not any of the others. And so it's absurd. This idea of a resurrected life is ridiculous. Let it go, live for the life here and now, and don't waste the brief time you've got. And to be fair, at face value, it is quite absurd. It absolutely is. However, only at face value. Because as Jesus points out, when you go beyond face value, or what we might call human reasoning, when we go beyond human reasoning and look closely at the scripture and see what God's reasoning is, we find that the notion of resurrection life is not absurd. It's actually human reasoning that, that is fully absurd. I just love how Jesus responds to their question here, right? They come to him and they're like, they ask the question and he just looks at him. He's like, nope, you're wrong. Doesn't sugarcoat it. Just flat out in their face, you don't have a clue. You're just wrong. And in the Greek, it's actually a whole lot more stronger than even that. Because the word he uses for this, you're wrong phrase, it's a word that means you're led astray. You're deceived. He's saying they're blind is what he's actually telling them, which is exactly what they are. And the reason that they are blind, the reason that they are led astray is because two things. And what does Jesus tell them? It's because you don't know God's word. And as a result, you don't know the power of God. And why don't they know God's word? Because they value man's word. They value man's reasoning, man's philosophy, man's logic. And here's the thing, church, make no mistake, it's not both and when it comes to man's reasoning and God's reasoning. It's either or. You can't just say, okay, well, we'll take some of this, some of this, we'll stick it all together. Sometimes man's word's right, sometimes God's word's right. No, you can't. You will have one foundation, which will be the reasoning of God as found in the Holy Scriptures or the reasoning of man, and you cannot have them both any more than you can have two foundations. You get one, so pick wisely. And if you pick wrongly, make no mistake, and wrongly would be picking man's reason, it's going to cost you. Maybe not your eternal destiny, though it certainly might if you believe man's reasoning or man's path to God or no God, but even as Christians, this can really cause some hurt in our life if we start trusting in man's reasoning over God's reasoning. Because what's going to happen is we're going to wander around in the dark, and what happens when you walk around in the dark not knowing where you're going. You're going to bump into stuff, and that hurts. And I'm wondering, why is it always the shins in the corner of the desk that we seem to find first in the dark? It's either that or it's my kid's Legos every single time, and it's quite painful. And the reason that we bump into stuff, though, is because it's simply too dark to see. King David was a man that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, and yet he too found himself looking to the foundation of man's logic at times in his life. And how'd that go for him? Not well at all. Abysmally awful, actually. However, by God's grace and mercy, David did come to see and realize how important it was to keep God's word above man's, which is why David wrote in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, 
and a light unto my path. So how about you? What's your lamp? What's your light? You don't get multiple lights. You've got one lamp you're going to go by. You can go with God's light, which is a big, massive spotlight, or you can go with man's, which is a tiny little flicker that's not going to allow you to see anything. So what's your lamp? God or man's? There's uh, one pastor I follow. I really like his stuff. His name is Vodi Bakum, and he says this. He was asked, Preacher, you're telling me you really believe in spite of all the scientific evidence that God made the world in seven days? You really believe that? And he looks, he says, no, I don't believe God made the universe in seven days. That's absurd. Get real. My God did it in six days, and he took a nap on the seventh. <laughs> and why do we believe this? It's not because of man's reasoning. It's because of God's reasoning. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, let God's word be true, and every man be considered what? A liar. A liar. And why did Paul say that? Because he believed God's word. He didn't care what science told him. He's like, nope, that science is cool, but not a chance. God's word is the authority, period, full stop. So you can bring me buco mountains of evidence that contradicts God's word. I'm not going to listen, period, because my authority is the word of God, not the word of man. Like the sad choice to make, and that choice is, what is our foundation for truth? Now, some of you might not know this. Surprise, we're a church, something. It doesn't just mean... We like to have potlucks, though we certainly do like to have potlucks. But that has nothing to do with being okay. What it means, and it's an acronym, the B in Baptist stands for something. And it stands for the Bible is the only authority for faith and practice. And by only, that means only. It doesn't include human science, human psychology, or human philosophy, or even your human experience. That's not the authority. So if you come into our church and you say, hey, pastor, guess what? I had a vision last night and we are supposed to sell this building and move down the street to this warehouse and we have to do it because God told me. So I'm gonna say, thank you. He didn't tell me that in God's word. We'll be praying about it though. Why? Because our authority is not man's experience, man's science, man's psychology, nor man's philosophy. It's God's perfect inspired word which is all we need to, as Timothy, as Paul says in the book of Timothy, we, it's all we need to be fully equipped for everything we need in this life. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25 says this. Where is the one who is wise? And if you want to really dig into the like, reasoning powers of man versus God's, read 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3. It does not mean words. I mean, right where it is in the dumpster and holds God's up highs. Here was, here's part of it. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25 says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know one of the biggest problems with taking man's reasoning over God's? I'll tell you one of them. Our track record is abysmally awful. It's not good. It's ridiculously bad. I don't care what field of human expertise you take, it's bad. Remember George Washington? How was he treated by science? They bled him thinking he had bad blood. So if you get the bad out, he'll be okay. And it killed him. Oops. And if you think we've somehow graduated past this in our modern science, think again, I've got a long list of things that are quite recent that we would happily discuss, though not now. How about philosophy? Is philosophy any better? Much of which is currently touted as expert philosophy tells us several things that we know aren't true. One, there is no God. Free will, it's an illusion. You think it's there. You're not actually making choices. Everything is a chain reaction going back and back and back and back to the Big Bang. And this idea of free will is total nonsense. I like Sam Harris as an atheist author. He, atheist author. He talks about saying we should actually think about emptying the prisons at some level because these people in the prisons are no different than us. They're just responding to things the way they're programmed to, just like I am. So what makes me any better than them? It's totally absurd. Okay. How about psychology? Do I need to give any examples here right now? Okay. How about the idea that your gender is whatever you feel like that day when you wake up? Does that mesh? with the word of God in any way, shape, or form. Not even that much. And yet that is currently considered expert opinion right now. By many, not all, but many. And don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that these fields are entirely worthless. I like lights. I like cars. I like my technology when it works, not like today. And I actually like my doctor. I'm good friends with him. He's a good guy. That's not the issue, though. The fundamental issue is, what is your authority? Not authorities. What is your authority? Okay. Is it man's or God's? And if we answer that wrongly, it's going to cost us some way or somehow. For the Sadducees, how did it cost them? It cost them eternal life because they rejected the author and giver of life, which was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they did so because he didn't fit made philosophy. He didn't fit with their true authority, which was man's word. And no matter what they claimed about God, see, they claimed, oh, we have both authorities. We have the Bible here, you know, only the Pentateuch, by the way, but we have that and we have man's reasoning. But what happened? One of them gave way to the other. And for them, it was man's reasoning. And here's the thing. If they had actually understood God's word, if they had made God's word their true authority, they would have understood the passage that Jesus quotes back to them, which is from the Pentateuch. He quotes it from the Pentateuch, which shows that Yahweh God actually will resurrect people from the dead. And what's the verse? It's Exodus 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is Yahweh God speaking to Moses, all right? And don't you just love this response here? Jesus checkmates them with a verse out of one of the very few verses that they claim to believe in. He could have used Daniel. He could have used Isaiah. He could have used the Psalms or tons of other Old Testament passages. But he uses the Pentateuch to show them just how ignorant and stubborn and blind that they truly are. 
And the argument he makes in this verse here by quoting Exodus 3.6 is actually a twofold argument. First, it's a linguistic argument, which simply means it's an argument based upon the language that God chooses to use and not use, okay? Which simply means it's an argument based on word choice. What does God say here? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, does he? No, and there's a reason for that. Second off, the argument Jesus makes here is covenantal. In verse 32, look what Jesus says after he summarizes this verse he read from the Old Testament. He says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And why does that matter? Because if the Sadducees were correct, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had died, and when they died, they no longer existed, then God's promises are null, God's promises are void, and he absolutely cannot be trusted. And the book of Hebrews talks a lot about this. I encourage you to write down Hebrews 11, maybe read that this week, but in Hebrews 11, I want to read one verse. It's verse 13, and it says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised by who? Who made these promises? God did, right? Okay, they didn't receive the things promised by God, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And as the author of Hebrews tells us and explains in this chapter, Abraham, along with many others, all died in faith, not having received what God had promised them which is a really, really big problem for a God who is powerless to raise people from the dead. But you know who it's not a problem for? A God who has enough power to raise the dead. And so covenantally, if there there is no resurrection, God's word absolutely cannot be trusted. We might as well close this building down and go home and get used to sleeping in on Sundays. I'm, I'm dead serious with that. We absolutely should. And in fact, the apostle Paul goes even further. He says, if there is no resurrection, if Christ is not resurrected, we have no resurrection and we should be pitied above all men. And pitied we should be indeed. For if God is powerful enough to raise the dead, we can trust his word and his promises and cling on to the hope that he will one day powerfully raise us, which leads us to our second point. To live for the life to come, we must know first off the word of God, but secondly, the power of God. You know, I've heard some people respond to the argument I'm giving here today, and they say something like this. They'll say, you know, even if Christianity wasn't true, I would still live a Christian life. And my response to that is, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, who are you joking? Why on earth would you do that? It's ridiculous. Look, a big of the Christian involves challenge. It involves hardship. It involves saying no to sin and killing your fleshly desire. What you want to do is you throw it to the side in order to follow God's word. But if there is no resurrection at all, why would you do that? If this life is all there is, why abstain from your fleshly desires? Why take up your cross? and follow Christ if Christ has merely gone into the grave and rotted there just like the rest of all mankind. Why would you do that if this life is all there is and there is no resurrection? You'd have to be a total fool to do so. No offense. But you would. You absolutely would. It's ridiculous. 
And this actually explains why most people don't do that. Most people, what they do when they believe there is no resurrection, they go full Quaheleth mode from Ecclesiastes. And if you don't get that reference, well, we have a class for that. But they do, they go full living for the things of this world because they realize, hey, this is all we got. Let's live it up and enjoy it. Do you understand, church, that the question of the resurrection lies at the center of our Christian faith? It is fundamentally crucial to our faith. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is helpful? No, it's in vain too. It's worthless. It's a waste of time. It's vanity, vanity. All is vanity if Christ is not raised. If Christ is raised, if he has been powerfully raised by a powerfully sovereign, all-powerful, omnipotent, it means... It means we'd be a fool to live for the vaporous shadows of this life, whether that be our job, whether that be investing all of our efforts into our career, into sex, money, hobbies, friends, family, you name it, whatever vanishing thing of this brief existence of life that we pour into, that we make our God would be a total ridiculous thing to live for if there is resurrection life. Why would we ever live for those then? when the wondrous concrete reality of everlasting life lies before us. Why did I just say that the things of this life are but shadows compared to resurrected life? Well, look at verse 30. In verse 30, Jesus gives us a glimpse into the heavenly realities that the shadows of this existence point. And what is his illustration? It's marriage. And what does he say? You say that, we'll, that we will be like the angels in heaven? Sorry, let me rephrase that. Does he say that we will be the angels in heaven? We're going to become angels. Is that what he says? No, I know you've probably heard that a lot of times at funerals where people come like, oh, they're an angel now. No, they're not. I know you mean well, but it's not true, okay? It says that in this regards, which is marriage, we will be like the angels. We won't be angels. We'll be like them in this regards, okay? Jesus is telling us that it'll be similar in that regards, and that's a big difference. Now, his point is that by God's power, we are changed into creatures that will no longer engage in marital love. That's his point. And in response to this teaching, everybody typically responds in one of two ways, okay? The first way is a, hey, men, right? Maybe it's, you know, you've had a hard marriage. Men, be quiet right now. But maybe you've had a hard marriage. It's just been rough. And this idea of until eternity do us part sounds like, ooh, I don't know if I want that, okay? So that's the first response. The second way that people respond to Jesus' question here is with great sadness. Maybe they haven't been married yet, or they love their marriage and they're, or they just young, you know, like I remember when I was young, I was like, I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I want to get married. I want to experience the joys of this life because there's fear of missing out on some great thing. And as a married man of almost 17 years, 18, oh my goodness, I'm old, almost 18 years, if you think that, I can assuredly tell you it's true. You are going to miss out. So, sorry. All joking aside, here's the point. On one level, yes, marriage is a joy. It is a marvelous joy. But according to what is coming, it makes even the greatness of marriage in this life look like a shadow. As as marital love and be, do you really think that resurrected life is going to be worse than that in some way, shape, or form? It's not. And here's the thing. If you think resurrection life is just simply more of this life just continuing on forever, you don't have a clue, Paul tells you. Is there fishing in heaven? 
Is there football in heaven? Because I don't want to go if there's no fishing in heaven. Anybody heard this kind of argument before? I remember when I was like nine years old, I was talking with a friend. He's like, I don't want to go if there's none of this stuff. We've all heard people say this or think this, and maybe we ourselves have said or thought this. But in 1 Corinthians 15, here's what Paul says in response to that kind of thinking. In verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Look at this stark response here. You foolish person, (laughs) what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other kind. And then in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead that what is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. The apostle Paul knew and a lot about what life would look like, look like. And what he tells us is that we're basically foolish people who don't have a clue of what it's going to entail, of how amazing it's going to be. And actually, he goes on to say, he says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And evidently, whatever our loving relationships are in the resurrected life, they are infinitely greater than even the relationships, which includes marital love, on this side of life, in this brief existence. And so if you think about it, this actually makes sense. It does, okay? So in this life, we tend to only have maybe a handful of really intimate, close relationships with people. Maybe it's a spouse, a father, a mother, siblings, or a few close friends. That's usually about it. And it's for a few reasons. One is that's just all we kind of have time for. I don't know about you, but I don't have time to be close friends with 50 people. There's just not enough time to do it. But secondly, it's really hard to trust that many people and be close to them, right? Like who here has been burnt in a relationship before? Put up both hands, all of us, right? Because we've all been hurt or betrayed by somebody that we got close to. And so what we do in response to that is we circle our wagons and we only allow in just a few select people to actually be intimate and to know us on a deep and personal level. But in resurrection life, not only will it be for eternity with no time constraints, but we don't have to worry at all about betrayal or rejection. What causes betrayal or rejection? Sin. Where's sin going to be in eternity? gone. There will be no more sin, which means there will be no more prejudice. There will be no more betrayal. There'll be no more heartbreak. For sin is what makes relationships cold and distant. And so do you see why Paul says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him? Because the Sadducees didn't know the word of God, or we might say, didn't have the word of God as their authority and therefore didn't know it. They didn't know the power of God, which is so powerful that it's going to make the things of this life, like football and like fishing and including marital love, seem like standing for hours in line at the DMV by comparison. And listen to what Paul says. The heart of man hasn't even imagined what God has prepared for us for all of eternity. Even the greatest things of this world are but shadows compared to the things that are coming in resurrection life. And when we get even the tiniest glimpse of that, do you know what the response is? 
we too will stand like the crowds in astonishment, which leads us to our final point. To live for the life to come, we must know the word of God, secondly, the power of God, and third, the astonishing love of God. In verse 33, it says that after they heard Jesus' response, the, crowd were, the crowds were astonished. And that's the right response. However, as we know, they didn't even know the half of what they should be astonished about. And actually, if we look at what Paul says, we don't even know the half of what we know or what we will one day know that would astonish us. Like, we don't even have a clue. We can't even imagine what's coming. And yet, we still know more than these crowds did. And so the thing is, astonishment is the right response because we know just how far God was willing to go to keep his promises by powerfully raising us to life so that we can experience everlasting life. And in verse 32, Jesus says that the God... Yahweh God is the God of the living, not the dead. And why is that important? It's because of the astonishing love of God. That's why he's God of the living, not the dead. It's because of his astonishing love that the dead can experience resurrection life. Think about this. Is God's love 100 years long? The average lifetime of a person, and when they die, that's it? No. Is it but a length? No. The love of God, church, is eternal. It is forever. It is irrevocable. It is from to everlasting. And a bad day is not going to throw that off. This is the thing. You are a child of God completely, as we read from Ephesians 2, by grace through faith in God, not the results of work so that no one will boast. And you really think a bad day or a bad week or a bad month is suddenly God's like, all right, you know what? My love was this, that's an it. You're out. No. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And Ephesians 2 talks about this. How deep and wide is the love of God? When it comes to the religious leaders in our world and other religions, Buddha lived and taught and he astonished many people. The same goes for Muhammad and Confucius. But as astonishing as they might have been, according to human reason and human standards, when compared to Jesus of Nazareth, they pale in comparison. For Jesus of Nazareth is the only religious leader who not only taught the way to God, but is the way to God. For he himself is God who paved the resurrection life for us, the way to resurrection life for us, by tasting death and then powerfully rising victoriously from the grave. And he did so, as scripture tells us, because of the great love with which he loved us, which is an everlasting love. It's an eternal love. And if that's not a reason to stand in admonishment or in astonishment for him, then live our lives for him in response out of thanks and wonder. I don't know what is. For in Christ Jesus, we find not only the word of God, we not only find the power of God, but we find the astonishing love of God made flesh who died so that we live eternally with him. As one hymn we often sing goes, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son, the arching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. By God's grace, in his mighty power, may we live for the eternal life to come and not for the ever-fading life of this world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the life that we have. 
the eternal life which is assuredly coming as assuredly as Christ Jesus was rose from the dead. And so we praise you because he lives, we live. And though we taste death, it is but a shadow that we pass under. And so we follow our good shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that he passed through it for us. The ax of death came fully down upon him so that it might just graze us. And we know that we will fully recover. And even more so, we will go on to live in an existence, and in a reality we can't possibly fathom. So Father, help us to get our eyes off the of things of this world. Help us to store up treasure in heaven for the life to come and not live for things of this world where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Help us to see the glory, the beauty of the cross, and the wonder of your majesty, love, mercy, and grace. We pray for the one here who does not know you. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. They would recognize they don't need to walk an aisle. They don't need to pray seven times a day for seven years to become your child. All they have to do is repent of their sins and turn and trust in Jesus. And that's it. They will be justified. They will be without sin. And the testimonies today that we heard about just that will become true for them. So we pray that today they would. We pray for Christians today, Lord, who have turned their eyes off of the authority of God's word, who have started to listen to man's voices around us. Help them to realize just how insufficient those are. And so may we as a church be firmly planted on our sure foundation. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.